Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live, Multispeed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624, or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalaya. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. It has been a crazy week for us here at Ulta Speed Technologies. And what I'm proud of is that my entire team is really dedicated to open source. And so what that has, what that lends itself to is I've been learning and and discovering um, new and exciting things for open source. And so uh, we're out on a week-long deployment here in Wisconsin and have been working with some really cool technology, some very powerful uh, server technology, um, and virtualizing offices in the wake of COVID to make it more usable for uh, for individual office environments to be able to work remotely, work from anywhere, and have access to all of their stuff. And, of course, we're doing that as much as possible with Linux and open source. And so I've invited my team next week to join us uh, to talk about all of this cool technology that we've used and and how we've set that up and, and how it's functioning. Now, were there some pain points? Absolutely. Um, and there were some specific pain points with some open source and Linux software. And so we're going to talk about why that is and then what we are doing as a company to try to address that. And so that, that's going to be, we're going to have all of that for you next week. Uh, 855-450-NOAH, that's one 855 The email, live at asknoahshow.com. You're on the air. Good afternoon. Hi, um, Noah, this is Donard and calling. Hi there. And thanks for taking my call. Hey, this is awesome. Um, I have a question, and um, I've got uh, a bunch of streamers in my family, and uh, I want a way to monitor uh, and manage my bandwidth and see what's going on. Okay. Um, can you hear me okay? I can, yes. Uh, I, um, so let me, let me start with this. Let me ask you this. When you say monitor your bandwidth, uh, do you mean that you want to just keep an eye on what's coming in or out on the – on the interfaces, or you want detailed, uh, you know, statistical reports on on what the network is doing? Well, I kind of want to be able to see, like, if there's any problems on the network, identify the problems, and then also the band hog, bandwidth hogs on there that, um, um, you know, so I can limit, put a limit on certain devices if they're using too much bandwidth. And what I've done so far is, on the previous show, you were talking about splitting your modem from your router. Um, I have a, a Netgear AC1750 6300 modem router, and um, and I went ahead and bought a, just a regular uh, modem. And I have an old Netgear um, uh, N600 router that I can use, and actually I downloaded... CDWRT and flashed it to it, but I, I haven't really used it before. So I'm, that's what I've gotten so far to try sure. to, to try to figure it out. Well, you're off to a good start. Um, so I'll start with this. So um, if you're looking for uh, if you're looking to track bandwidth, just as a, I just want to kind of keep an eye on what's happening. Um, 
you know if if there's if there's one particular client that that's acting up and so I'll, an example of how i i kind of uh, uh, attack that is um oftentimes i'll have a like an amazon echo or a uh, some other device that i suspect is talking out to the world when i really don't want it to or is using more bandwidth than i than i want it to um I want to keep an eye on that. There's a couple different ways I do that. Um, One of the easiest ways just to get, just to kind of get a big picture ID, idea of what's happening on your network is to use something like the traffic graphs in PFSense. Now, I don't know if you're married to DDWRT. It was just the first thing that that you happened to try. Um, But one of the things that PFSense allows you to do is have not only a traffic graph, which will give you a real-time visual representation of what's happening on on, on your network interfaces, but they also have an interface statistics panel that will tell you exactly how many packets were received, exactly how many packets have gone out, what that translates to as far as size, um, and you have the opportunity then to click on the little settings icon and change it and say, well, these are the interface these are the interfaces I want to show. These are the these are the the fields or the the um, the different categories of information I'd like to see. But I was uh, again <clears throat> just uh, working the last week on a, on a on a pretty massive deployment. One of the things that's been just absolutely critical to our workload is having that traffic graph up. And so when when people say hey, we're having some issues on this machine or that machine, we can look back and say, okay, well, that's because you have this much bandwidth and this machine is uh, is is eating too much of it. And I can have that traffic graph up and kind of keep my eye on what's happening and kind of try to get ahead of problems. So that's, the, that's, the, that's kind of a big picture way that you can kind of keep an eye on this. If you want to get more detailed, essentially what you need is information either being collected from the switch or you need information collected from the individual um, devices because the way that uh, the the way that the the way that, that that switches work is they're going to isolate traffic um, from from any one switch port. And so if you plug a laptop in or a server in or something to say, I want to kind of keep an eye on this. It really doesn't know what's happening on any other switch port unless you make it, you know, a managed, if it's a managed switch, you can turn it into like a mirrored port, something like that. And so the best place to do that, the best place to gather that information is, in fact, uh, at the at the router level. Um, you could use something like Libre NMS um, or Zabbix. Um, which you could install on your network and have that start to do uh, some some analysis. But with both Libre NMS and uh, Zabbix, in my experience, it really requires you to, to have a very definitive idea of what it is you're trying to keep an eye on or what it is you're looking for in specific machines, so on and so forth. And so from that perspective, again, I come back to PFSense and their, their interface statistics and their traffic graphs because I don't necessarily know which machine I want to keep an eye on. I just want to know if there's something using a bunch of Internet, I want to know about it. I just pulled up the router I, uh, that I'm on right now, and I can see that because of the, the we're obviously we're broadcasting remotely, I, I'm looking and we're, we're pulling about 8 megs is what we're pushing through um, uh, out of the WAN interface. And I can see that, and, and any time that spikes or any time there's more data being used, obviously the graph spikes and I get a visual representation of that. Does that kind of answer your question? Um, kind of, um, see my wife's a teacher and she's been bumped off the network a couple of times today and she had a zoom meeting. Um, but I got, you know, two sons that are streaming two or three devices at once. And mm-hmm. I, I don't know if it's them or is it a bandwidth issue? I want to find out why she's getting cut off in the middle of her meeting. 
I see. I, I need to figure that out. Okay. Well, that changes it a little bit. Yeah, okay. So you, you do have something specific that you're trying to accomplish. It's not just a, I want to have a, uh, you know, just a... I, I want. I'm just trying to find a, a general idea. There's something. There's a specific goal in mind. So here, here's how I would approach that. Um, the first thing I would do is I would, I, you know, you, I would create a rule, a firewall rule that prioritizes the traffic coming from your wife's computer. And so the, 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 it's going to depend on which routing platform you use. But certainly DDWRT, PFSense, OpenSense, all of them, uh, Microtech will all support this. Um, you, I would assign a static IP address to your wife's uh, computer uh, in in the DHCP, and just say when this computer comes on, it gets this IP address. And then I would just create a rule that says, with this particular machine, gets priority. Uh, and and these machines maybe have some cues or some limitations. Um, and 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 if you if you can limit the bandwidth on those other machines. Of course, the reason I, I hesitate to say that is, of course, if it's streaming, um, maybe you don't want to give. Uh, a bad experience to your kids. You may choose, though, to maybe have those cues in effect only during the time that your wife is teaching. Maybe between the hours of eight and three, uh, this cue is in effect, and the cue allows your kids or or anybody else in your house to only stream up to two megs per second. And a lot of times, what will happen is the streaming service will actually work with you on that, right? So if you let's say you limit it to two megs, and the streaming service, whatever it is, YouTube, Netflix, figures out that that's what they have to work with, they'll just start scaling down the uh, the the quality of the video, and they'll still be able to watch the movie. It just won't be delivered in 4K or 1080p uh, because you need the bandwidth for your wife to do her teaching. Okay, so um, PF PF Sense will do that, I guess. Huh? Absolutely. Yeah, PF Sense will do it, but I would I I'd strongly suspect not that I've set it up, but I strongly suspect that DDWRT would do it as well. Um, and so I would just I would look at I would look at uh, I would Google. DDWRT traffic prioritization, and somebody will have a guide on exactly how to set that up, and uh, that's that's how I would go about attacking that. In fact, interestingly enough, that's what I'm doing here with this broadcast, right? So I have the 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 connection back to the radio station is absolutely critical for me, and so no matter what the rest of my team is doing, um, it's going to it's going to, and I'm I'm literally watching them <laughs> mess with the router, and I'm like, make sure we don't unplug the wrong cable. But th- it's going to prioritize my traffic back to the radio station, and that's how I'm going to make sure that uh, even if somebody opens up YouTube right now, we're going to stay on the air. Okay. Yeah, I'll have to give that a try then. Give it a shot. If you run into any issues, please give me a call back, and and we'll dig into it further because that's a that's a that's a re, it's a really great question, and it's something that's going to apply to to a lot of people. Again, eight fifty five four fifty Noah. That's eight five five four five zero six six two four. The email live at asknoahshow.com. Jeremy calls from North Carolina. Hey, Jeremy, welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Hey, Noah. Um, I've got an issue that I'm trying to resolve with touchscreens. Um, I happen to be have a Raspberry Pi and an ELO um, TOS terminal touchscreen. Both of them are running Monjaro. Of course, there are different breeds of Monjaro because one's x86 and one's ARM. But I'm trying to, with Raspberry Pi, it's got a special touchscreen on it that's, uh, that's flipped portraits. Um, okay. And it's not... There's a way in Raspberry Pi to flip it in the config file, but that didn't work properly when I flipped it in. It, it still didn't work, and I switched it back to regular, and, and I'm just not using the touchscreen. 
And the ELO, basically what I'm looking for is a program that is similar to what the ELO came with when it was new for Windows, where you just initiate the program, it sends stuff to the screen, you click on dots on the screen, and it it configures a touch screen. Is there something like that in Linux? The calibration you're talking about. Calibration, yes. So there's two technologies um, for touchscreen. One is capacitance and one is resistance. In the old resistance screens, uh, calibration was necessary um, because the what was actually detecting the touch was uh, basically a little matrix grid thing over the top of the actual display. Uh, new, newer capacitance-based devices don't really need... Uh, to be calibrated because the they're detecting the, the the capacitance change on the screen itself. Now, again, I'm not an electrical engineer and I don't play one on TV, so this is my best understanding of, of how these two technologies work. Um, do you know if that? Do you know which technology that Elo Touch Panel uses? I guess I spoke. Uh, let me let me rephrase this. Do you know that that? Did, do you know that the configuration utility that you're familiar with? Did you use that on Windows on that specific model previously? That's not. That's a good question, but I don't know. I cannot answer okay. that. Okay. No. No. That's fine. That's fine. So. 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 No. That's fine. So. Yeah, so where where we get to with it is so what I would do is I would first look into what technology that screen is running on, and if it run if it's running on uh, resistance technology, then uh, I would start to look for a, a program that can calibrate it. If it's not, and if it's you know if you purchased it within the last five six, years, of course I don't know. You know a lot of those um, a lot of the well, it's still the the touch screen actually is getting input. It's just reversed. Like, it, it actually sees the input. I see. So it's like you push the right side of the screen, it thinks yeah. you're on the left side of the screen. Exactly. <clears throat> and the other one, that be, I can't even get it to work because I don't have the USB port plugged into it. So the Raspberry Pi. I don't know of anything off the top of my head, to be honest with you, Jeremy, uh, uh, that that will calibrate a, a, a touchscreen uh, in Linux. I've not really, again, using all capacitance screens myself, it's not something that I've ever had to deal with. I will tell you, should I have I had I woken up in your shoes, I would aggressively pursue uh, figuring out how to flip the screen inside of the Pi because that's probably a far more approachable solution than trying to recalibrate the touchscreen. In fact, on some capacitance, or excuse me, on some resistance screens, and I, I can't speak to the ELO specifically, there is a range to how, there's a, there's a, um, there's a limitation uh, on how wide the radius is that it will accept a touch from a given, uh, from a given um, calibration thing. So if, you know, you, if, if it shows an X on one part of the screen, you can't go to the, totally opposite side of the screen and push it it's only listening for a touch uh, you know around a certain area and we've run into that before not because the, it's totally well, off but because we... this one I just, I'm I'm testing that right now on this one I okay. can touch it on one side and, and it touch the other side and it moves the churches but it doesn't move doesn't in actually. any direction that is close close to where I'm touching but <laughs> gotcha yeah I, I would there isn't, um, there isn't one of those I would continue to look uh, look towards trying to solve it at the Raspberry Pi level. The other thing that that will give you, in addition to the, um, in addition to it being a, a technologically simpler way to fix your problem than than trying to recalibrate that touchscreen. The other thing it gets you that would be very appealing to me. By the way, I'm sorry. 
These are two different machines. These are two different touchscreens, by the way. There's a Raspberry Pi that's got a Raspberry Pi touchscreen on it, and the other one is an ELO computer. Oh, I understand. So, oh, okay. So the ELO isn't connected to the Pi. My apologies. Okay. Um, in, in, are you are you same problem on both of them? Are you okay with the? Uh, are you are you okay with the the touchscreen that's connected to the Pi? Do you like that as much as you like the ELO? Well, the. I mean, I like the ELO. I mean, the the Raspberry Pi touchscreen. It's just that it's not. It doesn't take the input from the right place because I've got it I've, in the Manjaro software. I've got it flipped inside the um, Manjaro desktop environment. I've got it flipped on Portrait, and it did not keep the fact that the Portrait is active. Like, like it worked fine when it was regular. If I had it regular, but whenever I go into the display settings and change it to <clears throat> to portrait or whichever one's not normal and this this is pro- this is probably a, this is probably a stupid question but have you tried installing the you have have you tried installing the driver from from elo for the the for the uh, the touchscreen the elo part no I don't. So here, so here's the thing. I don't actually, I don't actually know that this is going to offer you any particular uh, solution. It, it, that this is really going to fix your problem from the standpoint of most of the touch screen, most of the way that the touch screens work is, is that they, they, they simulate USB mouse and input, and so. The problem isn't necessarily that the that the that the the HID device, the human interface device that's that's emulating the keyboard, or the, in this case the mouse, isn't talking to the computer. That's working just fine. It's just that the part that where you're touching isn't doesn't correlate to where the actual keys are, where the thing on the screen is. But 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 nevertheless, if you haven't tried it, I would go to Elo site because they support Linux. Is one of the reasons that we use them in deployment. I would go to Elo site and download the single touch USB driver and take a look at that and 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 see. Just if that gets you anywhere, if it doesn't, I again I'd go back to uh, focusing on the on the on the on the Pi. Or if you want to use the Elo, I would imagine that we could get the desktop to flip inside of of a particular distribution. I know for sure I can do it in KDE. I can take my inside the monitor configuration and I can I can make that I can change the orientation of the monitor. Right. So I'd be looking at it reverse. <laughs> well, looking at it upside down, but yeah. Right. Does that help yeah, you? No. Uh, it gets you in the right direction. Thank you. Okay. Uh, again, if 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 it if it doesn't if it doesn't uh, you know if call me back. Let me know if that works for you, and let me know uh, what the success story is. I'd love to hear that. The other thing I will uh, I'll just leave you with is that oftentimes, anytime we talk about something on the air, and anytime there's a question, the community is about 15 times smarter than I am, and uh, undoubtedly, there's somebody listening to it right now that goes, "I've solved that, and here's how I've done it." And I'm sure that will come in as an email in the next week. So make sure to listen to a future episode, and um, I'm sure somebody has a has probably even a better suggestion than I. Our gadget of the week this week, Tiny Pilot KVM. The Tiny Pilot is a device that plugs directly into your bare metal server or computer and gives you a virtual console during BIOS and boot. Now, this is basically a a, a less expensive version uh, based off of the Raspberry Pi, complete with open source code based on a remote IP KVM. Now, if you've worked in enterprise networking for any amount of time, you've undoubtedly come across 
an IP KVM where you have the opportunity to control things remotely. Um, also, there's a lot of uh, there's there are a lot of uh, server manufacturers that ship with their own technology, either IPMI or IDRAC, the idea being that you can get console-level access to that server so that you can do things like reinstall the operating system remotely. The problem is these features have always been kind of reserved for the higher-end server market and the places that have a lot of money. Well, TinyPilot brings that directly to you and that allows you to repurpose Raspberry Pi so that any device can uh, or any computer can be remotely controlled over the internet uh, through this device. Now, the way that TinyPilot is doing this is they're capturing all of the keyboard um, and mouse right from your browser. So, if you're on the or on the remote end of this device, you just launch a browser, type in the IP address, and you get a center display that is a visual representation of a, the computer monitor. And then everything you do on your keyboard or mouse inside of that browser is forwarded uh, over to the Tiny Pilot. They use a lightweight WebSocket channel, and that they the performance is almost as fast as having your keyboard and mouse plugged directly into the server. In fact, they measured it and found that the difference was about 200 milliseconds. So this is really fantastic. And then Tiny Tiny Pilot is using an HDMI capture to capture the display output of your computer and place it into your browser. Uh, it works up to 30 frames per second at 1280 by 720 with a resolution with less than 200 milliseconds. So this is really cool. And the fact that this is available um, just for purchase, I think, is a, is, a, is a step in the right direction. I always appreciate it anytime somebody has a Raspberry Pi solution that I can just purchase the entire thing altogether because the reality is, particularly in this case, well, we need the Raspberry Pi, we need the power supply, we need the case, we need the SD card, but then we also need some special hardware like this particular HDMI capture interface that works with the Pi. And these are the kinds of things that would be very, you know, I'd have to go assemble that myself and then uh, and then and then ship it out. What's really nice is that I can go to Tiny Pilot. Uh, tinypilotkvm.com and just buy one. And they have a couple different versions available. The Essentials is just the Raspberry Pi 4, an 8GB SD card, uh, and that's 150 bucks. And basically what they're doing is um, they're, that's if you want to play with it and you're kind of, uh, you just want to, you know, get an idea of how it works. Then they go up to the hobbyist, which includes the Raspberry Pi 4, and they also throw in an aluminum passive cooling case. And then if you get their, 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 and that's $169. Then if you go with their top line, it's a Raspberry Pi 4, 32 gigs, and aluminum passive cooling case. Um, so, But all of them contain the HDMI capture, the USB-C on-the-go cable, a 3-amp USB adapter, and a USB-A to USB-A extension. Um, and then they give you a uh, access to Tiny Pilot Pro, um, with updates once you uh, once you purchase. So this is a really cool project and a really cool device and is something that we have ordered for Altaspeed to check out because uh, we do a lot of work remotely and having the ability to just have a client go say, hey, I'm having this problem with this thing and say, hey, well, go ahead and plug this device in and we'll help you reinstall the operating system from hundreds or thousands of miles away. That's really appealing to us. Again, open phones this hour, 855-450-NOAH. It's 855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. Our pick this week is Padlock, P-A-D-L-O-C dot app. Uh, this is a password manager, another open source password manager. There are a few that we've talked about in the past. This one is a little different. So if you're looking for bare bones entry level password management with a ton of features, though, it's KeePass. If you're looking for something all in the web browser, essentially a drop in replacement for something like... Um, 
what's the really popular uh, LastPass? Um, we would recommend something like Bitwarden. Well, Padlock is the is the password manager for people who either run businesses or people who uh, have communities or groups um the it's a it's a lightweight easy to use password manager that has native clients for mac windows and linux it's incredibly simplistic uh of course it's open source but one of the things that stood out to me is their family plans and their business plans and they have support for organizations and shared vaults and this is something that i found uh is incredibly needed both in business and in families, the amount of times that we have, you know, so-and-so needs the Netflix password, so-and-so needs the Hulu password, so-and-so needs the the password to Amazon or the password to this. And when you have shared accounts, not that that's a great security practice, but when you have shared accounts, there's there has to be a better way for you to say, hey, you as my wife should have access to this thing and I as your husband should have access to that thing without having to, you know, like an animal type out the password or print it out and say, here, add this one to your Bitwarden. And Padlock allows you to do that with their shared uh, with their shared uh, uh, vaults. And so I was excited to see that. The other thing I like is, um, uh, where, did, where did this go? Is there uh, is the the support that they have for business? So they have for two ninety nine a month, you can get their team support, and that allows up to twenty shared vaults with unlimited items. Then you can get their business plan, um, which gives you twenty four seven twenty four seven direct support. And then they have an enterprise modeling where you can actually get a custom quote, and they'll build padlocks specifically for your business. So is it you know? In full disclosure, is this the password manager that I'm going to use day to day? No, I installed it. I played with it. It's cool. I like it. I will continue to watch where they go. Um, but going forward, what uh, what I'm really looking for is competition in this space. At one time, LastPass was the king, and when other competitors start to started to come uh, to the surface, uh, they were ridiculed as not having all of the features that that LastPass had. And with all of these different open source password managers all coming together and trying to attack different problems different ways and solving them different ways, I don't care which open source password manager ends up winning. I'm just glad that we have them all, and I'm glad that we're continuing to make progress into getting open source particularly as it relates to password managers, uh, more of the standard. So if you want to look, learn more, padlock.app, that's P-A-D-L-O-C dot app. We'll have a link for you in the show notes at podcast.asknoahshow.com. Caden Live is in the news this week. Caden Live 2008 is out with nifty features like interface layouts, multiple audio stream supports, cache data management, and zoom bars in the clip monitor. And in the effects panel, one may argue that the highlights of this release are stability and interface improvements. This version received a total of 284 commits with some major contributions from new developers, thanks to Simon and Julius. So I want to start out with this. I, I've been a very vocal supporter of Lightworks, and I've been a very vocal supporter of Lightworks because I believe that it's a professional tool with a professional workflow for people who have to get things done uh, in the video editing world. And I appreciate the fact that they've ported their professional software over to Linux. And it's a dream to use once you get the hang of it. But there is something to be said about the fact that Lightworks does it its own way. They come from a reel-to-reel editing perspective, and so they've kept a lot of that workflow in there. And because a lot of the people that work with Lightworks or work with those kinds of workloads were familiar with 
doing things on reel-to-reel, uh, it, it's something that they probably very much appreciate. I, on the other hand, who has an entire file-based workflow, and as does pretty much everybody else who's cutting video these days, I don't necessarily appreciate their, their approach uh, to user interface. However, the user interface for Caden Live looks like it's a direct ripoff from Premiere Pro. It's that good. In fact, if you started on Premiere Pro, you're going to feel right at home with Caden Live. The other thing I like about Caden Live is, of course, it's open source, which Lightworks was originally promised to be and is not. And that's always something that's kind of rubbed on me. But I've held off on really, really digging into Caden Live uh, until just recently. Um, uh, essentially, my biggest problem was every time we tried to use Caden Live for some production, uh, for some production project. I would run into stability issues, or I would run into Caden Live crashing. Now, the good news about Caden Live, very much like Audacity, is if and when it crashes, um, it is it usually recovers fairly well, and you usually don't lose a lot, if any, work. Um, so that's a plus in its favor. But nonetheless, it's still an interruption to your workflow, and it makes you start to change. It, it starts to make you make decisions on how you're going to do your edits. Am I going to try and do that? If it, if I if I try and do this elaborate thing or try this new thing, maybe it'll crash and it wouldn't work, and then I have to start over or whatever it is. Um, it it keeps you from editing video the way you want to. And so I was excited to see that they considered that the the, the highlight of the re- release is stability. The truth is, even before the release of Caden Life 2008, I've started to use it more and more, primarily because I'd like to move... Uh, I like to move to open source tools when they're available. If they're not, I'm happy to use a proprietary tool on Linux. I'll do it begrudgingly, but I'm happy to do it. Uh, when an open source alternative that meets or exceeds the standards set by the proprietary alternatives uh, becomes available, then I think it's incumbent upon us to switch. And I will tell you something. As a person who who travels a lot and has had to do production from all sorts of, of different places we never expected to do production, what I found is that having the code open and available, particularly if it's in my distro's repository, changes the game quite a bit for me because now I'm able to just go and and, and and go to the place that we're going to do to film the interview or, or do the thing and when I get there if the if if the equipment that I have isn't going to work uh, we can begin to use other people's computers or go purchase some equipment and when we do that then all of a sudden it becomes a function of how do we get the software that we need on there and so with open with open source with OBS uh, with uh, with Caden Live with Audacity, that's never been an issue, and a lot of times, and I, I I think this is true for most people if they're honest with themselves. More often than not, the reason that people don't want to switch software really has very little to do with the software licensing. Really has very little to do, uh, probably has a little bit to do with reliability, but for the most part. People want to use the same software that they've always been using because they know where the buttons are and they understand their workflow. And I don't want to trivialize that or make it sound like it's not important. In fact, scientific studies have shown that the penalty for uh, changing the context of what you're working on, if you're doing email and all of a sudden you stop and go browse Facebook, that's a context shift. Anytime you do that, you take a 20-minute penalty. And so if you were to go back to doing your email, it would take you 20 minutes to arrive back at the same level of productivity and the same level of efficiency that you had at the time that you, that, at the time that you were distracted. And so from that standpoint, um, I don't want to trivialize people who say, well, I stick to the software because I have a, a workflow designed route. That's an absolutely valid reason to continue to use a piece of software. But what I submit to you, what I suggest to you is that oftentimes if you look at it, 
the open source software will do the same job as the proprietary software. Now, it doesn't always do it the exact same way, and the buttons not, may not be in the exact same place. But if you're willing to learn the way to do it in the open source uh, project, once you establish a workflow around that, you'll never have to change it because the the software will continue to remain open and continue to remain available to you. Whereas in the case of a proprietary solution, you won't necessarily have that same guarantee. And I've worked with numerous companies over the years that have purchased pieces of software ranging anywhere from a few hundred bucks to tens of thousands of dollars, and the company goes out of business and because the software is activated, they're no longer able to use that software after the company goes out of business. And even in a particular case, I was, worked for a particular company that had a had it in their contract even that if that uh, if uh, if they didn't if they weren't able if they weren't releasing updates anymore that um, they would be able to activate the software and they did that for as long as the company was around and as soon as there was nobody there to run the servers and and actually process that request then even that stopped happening and so all the lawyers that were in the room that said that they were covered end to end turned out it didn't matter they wouldn't have been in that situation had they been using open source software from the beginning and um, and so what I, what I found is in doing a lot of video editing and doing a lot of audio editing. I almost always gravitate towards Audacity, mostly because it's just a really great program, but also because I know where all the buttons are, I know how a workflow is designed around Audacity, and it's just a very good audio editor. I'm not the only one that that thinks that, by the way. There's a lot of people that have used Audacity in their production workflow because it's a lean, mean cutting machine. Hot Chips 32. So for those of you who are unaware, Hot Chips is the Silicon Valley Conference for Microprocessors and Integrated circus, Circuits. It's been going on uh, since the late 80s. There was um, a bunch of new open source stuff that we thought might be interesting. And so producer JT uh, was out and, and attended this conference and, and took some notes. Um, the upcoming Power 10 CPU will be 7 nanometers. And this is going to be IBM's first 7 nanometer processor uh uh, and and so that's that's exciting. Uh, Power 10 is going to support DDR4 as well as DDR5 memory. And while AMD is making waves about PCI4 uh, support, Power 10 is going to support PCIe. Five, uh, the Power 10 CPU memory bandwidth has I/O throughput of up to one terabyte per second and support of two petabytes of total system memory. The Power 10 will also have 15 cores per die and up to two cores per CPU. Now, most people are familiar with Intel's and AMD's SMT or hyperthreading system that enables two threads per core. Well, Power 10 utilizes SMT4 and what they're calling SMT8, and that gives you four or eight threads per system. That means that Power 10 can deliver up to 240 hyper-threaded cores per CPU. And so with the configurations of up to 16 sockets per system, you could theoretically have 3,840 cores in a single system. Uh, on the RISC-V side of things, uh, with general low-power RISC-V uh, CPUs, they have existed for a while, but the new 910 design uh, by RISC-V is specifically built for high-performance AI workloads. This is something that we're seeing all over the place. At Red Hat Summit, or, uh, yeah, it was Red Hat Summit last year, that was a big function of what they were talking about, is AI workloads and, and trying to meet that demand. Uh, with up to four cores, a clock frequency of 2.5 gigahertz, and focusing on vector math, that puts uh, AI workloads within the reach of those designing custom open source hardware systems. This gives RISC-V systems utilizing the new open hardware designs up to 20% performance boost when dealing with their workloads. And that can be accelerated by AI voice recognition and, and visual recognition, so on and so forth.
Um, the testing that they've done shows that the 910 is on par or exceeds the performance of the latest ARM Cortex A73 chips. Um, if that wasn't enough, there's also the announcement of the Manticore, which is a 4096-core RISC-V design. Uh, the initial prototype chipset is being tested already and runs a full Linux operating system. The planned design will feature four chips uh, with a total of 32 gigs of uh, HBM memory on the CPU package. And then Intel had a few sessions about their upcoming XE GPUs. Uh, Rajay Kadori, Intel's chief graphics architect, confirmed that Intel will open source the XE graphics driver just as they've done for their current on-CPU die graphics. And the driver code for this upcoming discrete GPU will also be open source. Uh, while the Intel GPU design will be proprietary, it's, a, it's, it's really fantastic that they're going to continue to keep the driver code open source. Um, I, I again, competition is king here. I I, I really think that uh, as we continue to go forward with Intel and AMD duking it out, and both companies producing some some really excellent products, uh, it's great to see that Intel is going to double down on their on on their GPU. In fact, interestingly enough, I'd be very excited and very happy to have an Intel GPU in my system. From the standpoint of, I've never had an issue with the built-in Intel GPU. It's always when I try to have an external GPU that I run into issues with Linux. Now, obviously, since switching to Ryzen and AMD graphics card, that's gotten significantly better. Um, but if Intel was wanting to get into that market and Intel wanted to do that job, I'd gladly let them. Um, the other thing is, as it relates to to uh, to open power, it's interesting to me that all of the all of the large companies, all of the big players, are looking at these alternative architectures and are looking at what they can do with it. Um, you heard just last week when we interviewed the director. He said, listen, uh, we exist for high-performance computing. That's what this is, and that's what we're aiming for, and that's where our customers are. And so all of this is being done on Linux. All of this is being done with open source, and all of this is being done as a competitor to the standard go-to run-of-the-mill brands, and I think that's really exciting. Um, so we'll continue to watch that. A huge thanks to Producer JT for doing that and, and going out. I've obviously been pretty tied up. Uh, with work this week, and so I, I was really happy that we were able to have a presence there. Again, 855-450-NOAH, that's one 855 email, live at asknoahshow.com, that is the number to join us, you can call or text at the same number. Um, containers have been fixed uh, with uh, Flatpak. Red Hat is uh, is releasing a runtime for desktop containers. Um, one of the issues that we had with containers when they first came out was they worked great on server side. I remember sitting in a Docker presentation and having somebody say, we solved this problem years ago uh, when we were trying to move cargo from one country over to the other. You want to move a cargo ship from Japan over to the United States. You don't just put all the cargo inside of the ship and, 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 and drive the ship over. Uh, if you're shipping sugar, you have to pack it one way. If you're shipping, if you're packing, um, Laptops, you have to ship it a different way. If you're packing water bottles, it has to be a third way. Um, and so how do we pack all of these things efficiently into one vessel? And, of course, the, the answer was shipping containers. And so everybody is kind of familiar with the, the big shipping container that they, they load all the cargo in, and then they just stack shipping containers up on the ship. And then when they come out onto the, onto the shipyard, they're put at basically on a trailer, and they kind of look like a semi, and then they drive them off. And it's great because no matter what you're shipping, whether it's 
computers or, or sugar, it all goes into the same box, and the same box is then what we have to deal with. So, con- so Docker is, and containers in general, is what has done that on server-side for Linux. Um, the problem is... Uh, it, that even though we don't have to revalidate every piece of software running on the on the server because it's sharing the it's it's using uh, shared runtime environments, and so even if you upgrade the server and all of the libraries change and and all of the resources that that application sh- that needed changed, it wouldn't matter because the runtime that the contain the container is running in is going to have copies of all of those references. Um, but it didn't do much to address things on the desktop. And indeed, right when containers were first coming out years ago, uh, my dad called me up and said, hey, I read about this thing on the Internet about containers. Is there any way I can use this to run this particular piece of software that he wanted to run on, on the latest install of, of Ubuntu at the time? Uh, is there any way to use that to run it? And I said, no, not really, because it didn't really support a GUI at that time. It was just very early days, just in the first couple months of, of Docker, you know, kind of making, a, making its way onto the scene. Well, Flatpak uh, is trying to address this. Flatpak, which first had its stable release in August of 2018, is applying the same ideas uh, as the Linux kernel technology found in server-side containers on the desktop. Once a desktop application is packaged as a container image for use with Flatpak, they can simply, uh, they, well, they simply, they call it a Flatpak, uh, it can it can be used reliably across different operating systems and even different versions. The user doesn't have to worry about the differences of dependencies because the application won't misbehave or stop working. It has everything it needs to run inside of its own container. Uh, the portals is one of is is the way that that uh, flat packs are able to speak outside of their containers to other. Uh, devices and where I think they have kind of a leg up on snaps um, is I've run into a certain level of frustration with snap confinement because what ends up happening is if you if you install it in the container and it lives inside of the container and then you go to access the file system there's no way to do that dynamically I either have to decide at install time to do that um, or I have to go back and, and reset a flag and say hey I, I want you to operate it in in, I think it's a classic confinement or something like that, um, in order to get it to browse to the file system. And that's bitten me on a couple of times to include a mini diary. I wasn't able to save the the the, um, the data file where I wanted to save it because it wouldn't have access to, to that location. Well, the way that Flatpaks is addressing this is with something that, they're, that they call portals. And the way that a portal works is any time a user wants to maybe access a printer or access a file system or whatever, a pop-up is generated and it just says, hey, do you want this thing to be able to do this and give in your password? If you don't want it to do it, you can just cancel back out. If you do want to do it, you put in your password and it will allow that flat pack to talk to that resource. And so the user just gets a dialogue asking if they want to print. Um, having a separate copy of the libraries for each desktop application would be prohibitive. So the problem is if you had... Uh, let's say five applications, and they all used a the same library, it would be not only very inefficient, but it would also start to consume a tremendous amount of space if we continue to copy those libraries for each individual package. And so instead what they're doing is having a shared uh, library system uh, that is called a runtime. The other advantage of shared libraries is, from a security perspective, it means that if if something does fall out of grace or there becomes an attack vector uh, for, with a given library, all that's required is to update one time and everything, all the applications will then update because they're all using that same, uh, that same uh, library. So there's two ways that, that Flatpak can, can operate. The first way is you can actually bundle the library with the Flatpak and that's called 
a bundle. And that name kind of makes a lot of sense, right? The second way that you can do it is, again, where you have a collection of libraries all together, and that Flatpak accesses that collection of libraries. That's what's known as a runtime. So enterprise users are very interested in runtimes because they want to get support for a combination of the host system and a runtime. Um, they want they don't want to have to test every time they go to do an upgrade. If they're going to go to CentOS 7 to CentOS 8, for example, they don't want to say, what is every possible application that's running on CentOS 7, and let's test it on CentOS 8 so we make sure that when we go to upgrade from CentOS 7 to CentOS 8, it's going to work. That would be a real pain. And so the containers and bundles and runtime solve this because it doesn't matter what the host operating system is doing. It matters what the container is doing. It matters what the runtime is doing. Of course, if the runtime gets out of date, that presents a problem, right? And so for those reasons, Red Hat Enterprise Linux has decided to release RHEL uh, with a run with the flat pack runtime built from the rel packages and so this runtime follows the red hat uh, life cycle and they intend to continue to providing security fixes for 10 years um, that's that's awesome the other thing that i thought was pretty cool is they're not requiring people to purchase a red hat enterprise linux subscription specifically for the container now my understanding is that you will have to have some sort of support model whether it's self-support or otherwise uh, available on the distro itself uh, but as long as the as long as the uh, runtime is running on a supported Red Hat Enterprise Linux host, uh, you're going to be able to take advantage of your support uh, for that. And so essentially what I see Red Hat doing here is saying, look, we had a great operating system that everybody really liked running on the metal. Now we have augmented because this is the way that the world is going to containers and honestly kind of away from uh, from virtualization. If Chris Wright's CTO of Red Hat, our interview last year, is to be believed that the that the the industry in general is moving away from virtualization and moving towards containerization, which makes a lot of sense from an efficiency standpoint. What Red Hat is doing here to address this is saying, listen, if you liked the reliability and the stability and 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 the way that we maintain that operating system, we will deliver that as a as a container, as a container runtime, so that you can build other operating systems but still have access to that uh, that runtime, and 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 so that's it's a really great move on Red Hat's part, and their their blog article explains it far better than I ever could, and so we'll have that link for you in the show notes. You can get those at podcast.asknoahshow.com. Absolutely fantastic work by Red Hat, and a huge thanks to them for doing that. Hey, at the end of every show, we try to get to some of your feedback. Doesn't always happen, depending on how many calls we have, but we'd like to get to that. And if uh, if that's something you wish to participate in, you can send your question or your feedback to live at ask. Show.com. We address that at the end of every show. Um, uh, we don't have a name here, but uh, so uh, somebody wrote in and said, Hi, Noah, I'd love to talk to you in person, but way out here in Poland, your show is at 2 a.m. I have some questions for you. You are a Firefox user and a Bitward enthusiast. What about Firefox Sync to store and sync passwords? Do you consider this to be a secure way to store passwords? Maybe there are some doubts. Together with my son, we try to record some scratch tutorials. Use Oh, this is the second question. Um, so... The way that Firefox worked the last time I checked in, Firefox, you know, I try and keep my, my finger on the pulse of what Mozilla does because they do move fast and they do tend to address things pretty quick and they take security very seriously. But the last time I checked, the master password in, if, you, if you're if you using a master password in Firefox, you're fine um, because then it, it stores them as a hash. If you don't use a master password and you're saving passwords inside of Firefox, they are recoverable 
inside of Firefox by just going into the settings, looking at the password and unmasking them. And so for that reason alone, I stay away from the Firefox password manager. And if I'm being honest with you, I haven't really looked into Firefox sync to store sync passwords because uh, it, it kind of terrified me that they were being stored in plain text, that I could just open Firefox up and look at what those passwords were. Um, I would suggest uh, Bitwarden. I really would. And I, and I would start with Bitwarden, and then if it doesn't work for you, then I might circle back to, to Firefox Stink. Sync, but um, you know, Firefox. The password manager in Firefox is feels to me like something that they got to because other browsers had a password manager. Not necessarily that Firefox believed that they had a better way to create a password manager. Um, Bitwarden. That's all they focus on. They want to make the best password manager, and indeed, I think they do make the best, at least cloud-based password manager out there. Of course, you can self-host it, but if you're looking for a solution that's going to run live on the internet and sync all your passwords around, uh, I would I would highly encourage you. Uh, to go the Bitwarden route. Your second question, together with my son, we try to record some Scratch tutorials using OBS. The problem is when I start recording in the OBS, uh, OBS, the browser, both Chrome and Firefox, start to lag during Scratch programming. So there's a couple different ways um, that you can address this. Uh, I was thinking that it might be possible to stream the browser from another laptop. This is a good approach. Maybe you have some other ideas. So if you want to go down the route of streaming your browser from one laptop to the other, you have a couple of options. Uh, the most professional way to get a video from one computer over to the other is, in fact, to use a hardware-based capture device like a Magwell HDMI capture, a Blackmagic HDMI capture. That has a downside of if your computer is, if the processor, and you give me the specs here, Intel iCore i5-826, so it's a, it's a pretty old processor, it's going to struggle quite a bit to, to handle hardware decoding uh, of of a, of a of an HDMI capture interface. That's something that even modern computers aren't happy about doing. And so um, that's the that's the most professional way. But it's probably not going to work on your system any better than capturing the screen. The second way you can do it, the second most professional way that I can think to do it would be to use something like NDI. Now OBS supports NDI, and what NDI is is a protocol for delivering network video or video over the network, real time low latency video over the network. Now, that's advantageous because it means you can record your tutorial in real time, and whatever you say and whatever you're doing on the on the computer is going to show up in real time, uh, even if, if it's on a separate machine, much like it would if you had a physical cable connected. The difference is you're not going to be taxing the USB uh, bus. You're not going to be... I, I guess you'll still be taxing the processor because it's still going to have to render the video. But uh, it's a little bit less load on your system, and you're certainly not uh, generating the video and capturing it at the same time. You're breaking that workflow up. So NDI might be something to investigate. If you wanted to go the poor man's route, I would suggest taking a look at something like RTMP. Now, the downside to using RTMP is that the, it's not meant for low latency, and so there is a bit of a delay. If you're on a LAN and you're on the same device, and you're probably it's not going to be probably too terrible, um, but you'll have to see if it works for, for you and the way that you want to record your tutorial. Easiest way to do that, uh, just open up VLC. Well, you can do it a couple different ways. VLC, click on File, Convert, and Stream, and you can actually you can actually uh, uh, stream uh, right to an MT RTMP address uh, right from the computer. The second thing you could do is open up a terminal, and you can stream uh, using FFmpeg. And so I actually did that a few years ago, uh, back when we were covering LinuxCon. And Chris had called me up and said, hey, could you get video? Could we stream this? And I said, yeah. And so I actually, at the time, the OBS wasn't really a thing, and... and um, 
streaming wasn't as, as popular as it is now, but I used FFmpeg to pipe a, uh, the webcam uh, out over FFmpeg and into an RTMP stream. And so certainly that's, that's a way you could do it. Um, if it were me, and I woke up in your shoes, and I wanted to record a tutorial, and I had an Intel i5-A26 with uh, 16 gigs of RAM and a C920 camera and a USB microphone. Uh, the way that I would do that is I would use something like Kazam and record all of the steps that you're going to do in your uh, in your tutorial first, and so or or video first, and then after you do that. And and you have all of the the scratch done. Then I would go back and watch the video, and with your microphone connected, then do the voiceover of. And here's what I'm doing, and this is how I'm doing it, and so on and so forth. And you'll find a couple of things. For the first thing that you'll find is you'll find where you need to edit your video to begin with. And so instead of the the you know having a tutorial where it's like, and then I click on uh, hold on here, let me click on this. Uh, okay, all right, yeah, hey here. Instead of doing that, you you can cut those portions out of the video so that the voiceover lines up perfectly with. Uh, what you're actually doing and what you're trying to convey. And that's going to keep people's attention. It's going to people keep people connected more, uh, and it's going to give you an overall better project. Indeed, uh, when uh, when we do stuff out at the radio station, almost all of it is pre-produced for that reason. Um, and so doing that, you'll split up your workload. I would imagine that your laptop shouldn't have much trouble capturing uh, it may have trouble running OBS at the same time that you're trying to run a browser doing Scratch and then capturing it, but I would imagine that, that Kazam is lightweight enough that that will work for you. Um, and then the other thing I would do is if you you said you have a C920, so obviously you're doing camera. There's no reason that you can't capture the camera inside of OBS and just uh, leave the browser side uh, for later. Or the other thing you could do is capture the capture the browser and if you want if you could run your C920 on a different laptop you could record the video and use it kind of like B-roll so there's you talking into you know you've got a microphone and a C920 and a second laptop and you're talking as you're doing the scratch thing and all you're doing is capturing the uh the the web browser inside of the inside of OBS uh, again just trying to split up those workloads across a couple different machines um, that would be the way that I would approach that problem Emailer writes in and says, Hello, I was wondering your take on the possibility of using a prospective Mycroft AI, standalone as in non-cloud-based, speech-to-text server as a driver for some of the home assistants, especially in the fallout and criticism of Mycroft's AI recent EULA shenanigans and the bug uh, where it happened to keep the records of the cloud-based speech-to-text service. Well, first of all, the, the, um, the, the shenanigans are precisely why uh, we like things to be open source because these kinds of things happen out in the public and you have the opportunity to take the code and go either do an entirely different project or just continue using the, the, the same project but in a, in a different way. Um, I think it's a gr I, I really like where Mycroft uh, is skating to. I'm not completely satisfied where, where they're at today, if I'm being honest. Um, I have a real low tolerance for what I call bad science projects. Um, when I grew up and first got into home automation, I was using a lot of X10 stuff because that was kind of the go-to de facto standard. And what I found uh, very, very quickly was that the reliability and the and the stability of of X of uh, of uh, did I say X to go of of X10 was just not that great. And so sometimes the light would come on, sometimes it wouldn't. Sometimes the switch would come on, sometimes it wouldn't. And it drove my wife nuts. Uh, to the point that we ended up having to rip it out. And w what I've seen from Mycroft, and I don't own one myself, and I've not extensively played with it, um, what I've seen from Mycroft myself is that um, 
it works most of the time when you have the right stuff and the right setup. But oftentimes the right stuff and the right setup means uh, little boards connected with USB connectors all over the place and microphones and cords and other things strung. It doesn't feel like a cohesive device. It doesn't feel like an Amazon Alexa. It doesn't feel like a whatever the Apple version is. It doesn't feel like a Google Home Assistant. Um, and, and I don't have a, a very high tolerance for that. And I certainly don't have any interest in using that in my... Uh, in my home so that that's just kind of where i'm at but they're they're making tremendous progress and actually steve ovens a good friend of mine and a contributor to the show has said uh, that he's working on trying to uh, to sort some of this out and indeed they're in the process of an entire uh rewrite of some of the code so huge thanks to him and the contributions hey you can catch the show every tuesday at 6 p.m central we stream it live at asknoahshow.com if you'd like to connect with us throughout the week we invite you to follow us on twitter ask at, at ask noah show we'll be back next tuesday at 6 p.m central asknoahshow.com